It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Welcome to another episode of Fix SA right here on MoneyWeb. Conversations committed to finding solutions and viable approaches to the complex and multifaceted issues facing South Africa. I'm Jeremy Maggs and today Max Price, who was Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cape Town for 10 years from July 2008 to June 2018 and from 1996 to 2006 he was Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand. These days he consults in public health in higher education, strategic leadership and crisis management. He's just written a best-selling book called Statues and Storms, Leading Through Change. Max Price, a very warm welcome. You write about the importance of vision and direction. Here's the first question. Where is South Africa right now, in your opinion, lacking direction? Well, you know, obviously my areas are health and education, and I don't want to profess on areas that I don't have expertise on. But I do have a sense that our leadership is just keeping things ticking over and trying to fill potholes and patch other gaps in our society and in our policy and not providing a vision of uh, what the society could be and what it needs to be. So it feels to me like our political leadership, by and large, does not come with a vision. Perhaps it's a bit jaded because there have been visions in the past and people are now increasingly um, disillusioned about being presented with more visions, more new dawns, because the devil is in the detail and there's a sense that policies don't get implemented. Um, So it's a balance. Um, And I think that the direction that vision now needs to take is much more, ironically in a way, because some would say it's not vision if it's about the detail, vision is about the big picture. Mm. But I actually think the vision that needs to be presented to people now are the concrete details of what can be done, what will be done with deadlines. Some of the recent initiatives, the partnership between business and government around fixing power, energy, crime, is the sort of thing I think we need to see more of. But with plans that have deadlines and that will be reported on, changes to policies uh, need to be reported on, commitments to implementing the Mm. recommendations of Zonda. It's the detail that we need. And so... If anything, the vision has to be much more specific and detailed than a vision traditionally would be in order to reestablish confidence and faith amongst the electorate, amongst the population and hope. Max, take me back to 2008 when you became vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town. You would then have had to think about a vision. So my question to you is not what that vision was, but how do you go about developing and articulating a vision that everybody is going to buy into? I think it's context-specific. So one can sometimes come into a situation where a lot is broken, a lot is going wrong, and the vision has to be about fixing things and getting buy-in from that perspective. I'll come back to that if you want me to, but the context you're quoting of 2008 when I became Vice-Chancellor was the other scenario where 
actually things are going very well. The university is very popular. It's achieving tremendous international results with fundraising, with research, with its reputation, with attracting staff. And there to come with a vision can be more difficult because one often faces the reaction from the people who have built the institution up to where it is. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think that's really the wrong approach. Uh, If you wait for something to be broken before you start fixing it, then you get exactly into the ESCOM situation of not thinking ahead, not thinking about how populations will grow, how needs will change, how maintenance needs to be done. And sometimes it's more difficult to produce a vision for an organization that is riding the crest of a wave in a way. What I did and need, what I think needs to be done in a situation like that, firstly, quite a lot of reading. One needs to know where's the world going, uh, what was the view around, in this case, higher education. And this was a time when technology was producing, starting to produce a fundamental shift in the possibilities of doing online education compared to -to face-to-face education. And there were the growth of online courses and degrees and things called MOOCs, the massive open online courses. Mm. And it seemed to me that since the traditional universities in South Africa had defined themselves exclusively as face-to-face institutions, they were being left behind. And so reading about that, and then the second step was to visit institutions that I considered leading institutions globally, and uh, both in the developing and developed world, and see what the thinking was there, because there's, one also doesn't want to waste time reinventing a wheel or falling into the same, making the same mistakes that others have already made and learned from. And it's seldom that one is absolutely at the cutting edge and no one has done this before. So I think the first step is reading and getting a sense of that environment. The second is actually visiting and hearing what you often don't hear in the glowing reports that institutions write about themselves or that newspapers write. So to find out what were all the mistakes made before getting to the point where one could uh, develop the vision. What were the things that did not get reported and did not get shouted about? Mm. And then the third step is about bringing people along with you because in most institutions, although you, in some senses you lead from the front, you provide ideas, but the institutions require buy-in. They require people to share your vision, shape it, and be willing to own it in a way that they don't feel they're following orders. They feel like they are driving the change. And to get that, uh, sometimes you need to take people along the same path of learning. For example, in my previous job as dean of the health science faculty, we needed to do a radical reform of the curriculum and of how teaching was done. And I thought that Australia was significantly ahead of us. And I took a group of six professors, the heads of the major departments, with me on a look-see visitor of some of the institutions in Australia because I thought they wouldn't simply take it from me. I didn't have enough authority. It was too early in my term to have earned enough trust that they would say, we'll follow you, you lead. I needed them to be persuaded. They needed to see uh, others that who they did hold in, in high regard, how they had done it. They needed to see a wide range of different ways of doing something and recognize that the way we were doing it was not the only way or necessarily the best way, and then come back. So it was finding ways of generating that buy-in to make them feel that they were the leaders as well. And then when you need to mobilize a much larger group, you know, you can't always take people on overseas jaunts for something like that, 
then various forms of workshops, retreats, scenario uh, planning. The most difficult thing, especially in an institution that is working well, is to get people to think where it could be better or what might go wrong in the future and to deal with some, to, to confront them with scenarios so that they can um, contribute to a solution. So, Max Price, let's take some of those lessons then and put them onto a broader canvas if we can. Uh, And the one thing that I do want to pick you up on is you talked about getting a sense of the environment, and I think that that is absolutely critical. And I'm wondering, as we talk about the bigger picture of fixing South Africa, whether so many people, whether they be academic leaders, business leaders, political leaders, have lost that sense of the environment and how they start to pick it up again. Right. Just to be clear, we're not talking about the ecological environment at the moment, are we? We're, we're talking, talking about, about the broader operating environment. Context, economic context. Very right. happy to talk about ecology if we want to, but we'll make that another no. conversation right. at some point. Right. No, I just wanted to be yeah. sure I understood you. Yeah. Well, I think it's very hard to change any society and to grow if you don't have hope. And the sense of hopelessness, I'm thinking now particularly amongst leaders. So there's good reasons for being hopeless in different contexts. But if you are a leader in a society or a potential leader or a young person, actually, coming out of university or out of school, and you have no hope, it's hard to get motivated. So for me, the first thing about understanding and and seeing the environment is to figure out, be more realistic about that. And I think like you, I'm, I'm an optimist, perhaps naive, but want to believe that the society can succeed and will succeed. One of the things that I found, for example, in my job was I had extensive exposure to universities in other African countries and in other parts of the world. And I was always struck returning home how good our universities are, how they have survived lots of pressures and stresses and financial difficulties and regaining a perspective of where we are, when you're only in South Africa and you only see the problems and you only read the social media that hop on about the problems, I think it's easy to become very gloomy and to lose that hope and to lose the perspective. We have a massive amount of corruption, but actually, and I'm not defending it, I'm not thinking that we can live with it, that we shouldn't address it, but we know a lot about it um, because we have other institutions in society that are digging around We have Corruption Watch, we have the media, we have investigative journalism, we have a reasonably intact judicial system, we have commissions, and we have a a commitment to fixing corruption. When I traveled in many other countries, it's just, it is the norm in a ways that we actually, I think South Africans can't imagine. So, So gaining perspective on that environment is one of the things we need to do. The second is not just to say, well, we're not as bad as, as we might be because, look, they're worse. The second, for me, has always been engaging with young people. And the best experiences of being a vice-chancellor were to be at, for example, dinners in the residences, to meet young people who had, who had overcome incredible odds, coming from schools where they'd never been taught in English, uh, never had a sports field or extramural activities, they, they were the best in their class and managed to get into UCT. And they're so excited to be there. They're so hopeful and proud. I mean, ironically, I think people who have overcome those odds are much more proud of their institutions than people who have mm. regarded it as their birthright. You know, the, the students from the Western Cape universities who came to UCT would not be seen dead in a university blazer. 
I mean, it would just be uh, so establishment. But the students who came from rural schools and were, uh, were the first in their generation to be at the university all wanted to have blazers if they were on the executive of a committee. Um, so enormously proud and no, enormously hopeful. Unfortunately, most of them are disillusioned with politics, and I try to persuade them that they should use their talents and skills in political institutions, but they had often given up on politics and were planning to go into the private sector or right. into NGOs. Max, I, I, um, want, I want to pick you up on that in just a moment about the uh, the unwillingness to engage in politics and activism. But before we get there, I want, to, I want to come back to this word hope. And no one is doubting the importance of hope in this country. And you, along with many other guests on this podcast series, have spoken about that. But I would put to you that in the current environment in South Africa, hope is becoming an increasingly difficult emotion or even commodity to sell. How do you do that? How did you manage to articulate that sense of hope when you were managing a large institution? By focusing on the on the successes, on the achievements. When a scientist is recognized internationally, we make a fuss about it. To say to people, we in South Africa are producing some of the best science in the world and it is often recognized internationally before it's recognized here. By highlighting the achievements of students who've overcome these odds and become Rhodes Scholars or got international scholarships to do their postgraduate study, by also presenting a vision. So there was often a sense that some of the best work would have to be done overseas because uh, why would South Africa developing, let's take, for example, the Square Kilometre Array, that, that fabulous astronomy project in the Karoo mm. near Carnarvon, you know, it's, I, I, would, I would go out and say to people, yes, this may not be immediately about providing water in poor areas, which is clearly a desperate need, but it's about uh, creating world-class science, attracting people who want to teach and research here. And there are enormous spin-offs by training engineers who can manufacture those telescopes and those computers. We are actually feeding an industry of IT that this country will depend on. So my strategy has been to present a vision of being world-class, of being competitive, and of showing that we often achieve that. So that's the one. Perhaps the other is, I think it's really easy to be disillusioned and depressed and hopeless about the national political scene. But there's so much that happens um, on a micro level. I'm on the board of a couple of NGOs, and one of them is a Habitat type NGO. And what they go out is they work in informal settlements and help people recreate those settlements so that fire engines can get in when there's a fire or that water and services can get in when there aren't any. And these are, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who work in these organizations. Uh, we saw it during COVID as well with the food gardens and the food distribution in the city, the, the cans. So I, I focus, on, and when people say, what can I do there's such a, you know, what I can do is a drop in the ocean and the problems are so big. My response to them is that if you change the life of an individual or an individual family, you have changed the world for them. You've made a huge impact. Mm. And if we can have that sort of impact, it grows, I think. While the bigger politics is slowly being sorted out, it keeps people, the integrity of people, the hope of people on the ground in communities sustains them. 
Max Price, you write this in the book, and the book, by the way, is Statues and Storms Leading Through Change. You say, I found this distressing. I felt students were primarily interested in their careers. You've just mentioned that to me, and unwilling to engage in politics and activism. Why in trying to fix a problem is activism important? Because ultimately, actually, government matters. As much as we might disparage it, we cannot live in an anarchic society that doesn't uh, have a government, doesn't have local councils, doesn't have governance. And so I want people to see, I want some people, not everyone, of course, but universities have traditionally been the training grounds of our future politicians, with a few, with few exceptions. But people cut their teeth in activism, in protest. They learn, they, they get elected to, doesn't have to be a political organization even. It can be the executive committee of the, of the soccer club or of the debating society, the debating union. Through that, they, they learn to argue. They're exposed to other ideas. They learn to organize people. They learn to do basic management things, which are critical for successful organization. You know, the issue of corruption in an executive or in leadership is, I think, in part because uh, quite a lot of our leaders did not uh, grow, come up through organizations where they kind of learned what are the rules of debate, the rules of running, of creating a budget and being audited and being accountable and running a committee. So there are lots of opportunities at university for students to acquire management and leadership skills and activist skills. And that will hopefully carry them through to their later life when they will be active citizens. The challenge we have is that we don't have a citizenry, we don't have a civil society that is good enough at holding government accountable. And that requires not only activists who've gone into government and who and who do a job well there, but activists who hold government accountable through civil civic society organizations. Organizations, the the, the, the public interest law firms, the the public health groups, the people that go into communities to change education, to change early childhood development to the example I gave to to the architects and builders who are going to change the shape of cities. These are all forms of activism, and I think society desperately needs them. How do we find our way back? How do we find our way back into more robust activism then? I think we are. The quote that you just quoted from my book was actually something I'd said between 2010 and 2015, was the early part of my term, and what I was reacting to was the fact that there was no, no student activism, very little on campus. Students were only interested in, they came to university, they wanted to get a, a degree that would help them make a lot of money. And the, the societies they joined were the business societies. There was a JSE society on the campus. There was a, a society involved in startups and entrepreneurship. Those are all great things. I don't put them down, but the SRCs, Student Representative Councils, and the other more political organizations were dominated by ANC Youth League and ANC and SASCO, which was ANC Alliance, South African Students Congress, which was strongly ANC aligned. And from 1994 until about 2014, they treated this as a honeymoon period for the new government, for the ANC government. They were also to a significant extent under the thumb of the ANC government because they were kind of the Youth League. And so they didn't challenge the corruption that we were already seeing. And they didn't challenge the secrecy bill, which we were seeing. There was a bill that was put to Parliament to try to prevent access to a whole lot of information and various other things. So 
that was what I was, and the violence that, that we were seeing and the lack of security, lack of providing security, lack of service delivery, the student movements were not active in that regard, at least not at UCT and not at WITS. And so I was being critical of that, saying I wish the students would be more activist and take on the government. Interestingly, then, by 2015, I, I say when I look, one of the things I do in the book is to look at what changed. Why did you have this explosion in 2015 around roads must fall and fees must fall and other campaigns, campaigns around gender violence, disability. And I think that one of the key factors was that the ANC had lost the hegemony in the student movements around that time. The EFF had broken away or the ANC Youth League had split to the EFF had formed in the early 2010s. And they were now becoming strong on campus. You had a, black, a resurgence of black consciousness with the PASMA movement, the Pan-African Students Movement of Azania. And so, um, and then you had the splits in the ANC itself. And so you had some in the ANC Youth League and SASCO who were defending Zuma and many who were very critical. So it created the space for firstly anti-government activism. And then there, for other reasons, I think one of the South African commentators, political analysts, his name is Ashil Mbemba, has referred to what he calls the Fanon moment, that many countries post-decolonization have a Fanonist moment, roughly around 20 years, when a new generation has, that was born after decolonization is hitting youth, uh, hitting their 20s, they're at university, they're disillusioned with the limited change that has occurred, and they uh, feel that it's necessary to take up much more extreme positions. And I think we had a, a whole lot of that as well. So I wouldn't be as critical today of the lack of activism. I think we're seeing um, a lot of that. Now my criticism is that it's very racially polarized and that to make progress, we have to overcome that. We have to develop much greater unity across different youth movements on the campuses, across black, white, colored Indian students and in society more generally. The non-racial movement, not all the movements are non-racial, not all of them are committed to that. But those that say they are, and I think I believe they generally are, need to make much greater effort to show, to demonstrate that they have place for activists of all races and that they don't create a chilling effect on debate. Right. The identity politics that we witnessed, that we've witnessed globally, but also in South Africa in the, in, in the last 10 years, I think has been very damaging for non-racial um, political movements and activism. Max Price, that's the student side of the equation. What about universities themselves? What renewed role or accelerated role should they be playing in terms of the bigger fix in South Africa? Are they doing a good job or are they failing to provide the kind of education, guidance, leadership that we need in this country? May I broaden my response about the higher education landscape Certainly. Before, before narrowing it to universities? I think that we have suffered seriously from a focus on universities. And uh, one understands in a way why that happened after 1994, because white grad school leavers tended to go to universities, a very large proportion, some, you know, well over 50%. Black school leavers, if they went anywhere into higher education, very few, well under 20, like under 10% went to university, and most went to other forms of further education like technical colleges. And it was felt that in order to rectify that, in order not to reproduce that 
racial hierarchy of post-school education that we needed to have many more universities. We needed to convert what were the polytechs, the, the technicons, into universities of technology. And that's where the focus and the money went. And I'm afraid I think that was a mistake. One understands, as I say, how in the immediate post-apartheid period, it seemed like it was necessary. But the result is everyone wants to go to university. There's not enough money for as many universities and as many people as we have at university. And the quality technical education institutions have not had the attention and and the support they need and don't have the status they need. And if you look at many European countries, Germany and Switzerland, I think their economic success is very much built on the success of their dual uh, education system, university, which only a very small proportion of people go to, and their technical training institutions. Technical includes drama and art, and it's not just sort of engineering. So one of the things I think, that one of the things we need to fix, address, is fixing that. And the second is the, the early childhood development and preschool education, because the kids, we're, I call them kids, the students we're getting out of school are just not well enough prepared for university. And a lot of that, so the school system is, is still broken. We've got much more access, but we haven't got the quality we need. And universities are ending up spending a lot of their resources fixing what should have been done at school. And so they can't really rise to the occasion. So it, it has to be a comprehensive approach. But in the, at the universities in particular, if I may now turn to your question, um, I think one of the other problems we've, we have uh, is that we have not created a sufficiently differentiated university system. You know, in the U.S., there are well over four to 5,000 higher education institutions that are called colleges and universities that we would recognize here as universities. But only less than 300, about 300 of them, have been licensed to grant PhDs and are therefore research institutions. The 90% of them are not research institutions, they're teaching institutions. Now, we've created a system both of funding and of uh, sort of status and rankings where every university wants to be a research university, every university wants to have PhD students, and every university wants to be rated on a scale of research universities. And the funding system that we have to fund universities largely incentivizes that. And that's a problem um, because we don't have enough top researchers for all the universities to be research universities. We're probably not producing good enough quality PhDs and perhaps even master's degrees at all the universities. Because of that, many don't have the critical mass to do that. And so more of them should be focusing primarily on teaching. And we need to redesign them so that teaching is valued and rewarded. In the current model, you can't become a professor if you haven't got a PhD in most universities and if you haven't got a very strong research record, let's say 20 to 30 peer-reviewed journal publications. I think that's completely misguided. We should be making people professors at teaching universities because they are brilliant teachers And they should get recognition for that. They should be professors for that. They shouldn't have to do any research. Uh, Perhaps they might do research in pedagogy or in the teaching of their fields. So if if our universities are going to deliver better on their mission, they have two missions or three missions. One is to produce graduates that are well equipped for the economy. That needs teachers. And uh, we need to valorize that and reward the teachers. 
The second is we need really good researchers, but not just mediocre researchers. We need people who are doing cutting-edge work on global terms. And for that, I think we should strengthen um, the research universities and concentrate the research resources there. And then they all have a third mission, which is to improve the well-being of the communities that they are located in. And most of them do that um, to, a, to a good degree, although they're not really funded to do that. But most of them do do that. Max Price, I'm unfortunately going to have to leave the conversation there, but uh, wide-ranging and uh, very, very reflective. And thank you so much indeed. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.